Welcome to the Greater Church Podcast. We are praying that wherever you find yourself on the journey, that this message will be an encouragement and blessing to you. And now, here's today's message. You know, there's something that all of us in this room, we all have in common. You say we're all traveling on a journey that we call our life. And we want our life to matter. You want your life to matter. I want my life to matter. Everybody in this room this morning wants their life to matter. That's why we're here. We're here to ask the Lord and Jesus to make our life matter. So for the next few minutes, what I'm going to do is to take the opportunity to uh, tell you about a season in my life. You know, we all, when we're born, uh, we begin with a season when we're born. We have a season that we're educated. We go to school. Then there's another season that we have the opportunity to start a family. We, we meet someone special. We get married, start a family. Then we start a job. And then we have different jobs that are seasons in our life. And you put them all together, all those seasons together, and that makes up our life. Well, I'm going to share with you this morning uh, what I call my Make It Count story. It is about uh, a life-changing season in my life. And I can tell you from listening to Chino and knowing a lot about his life, I can tell you that my story this morning is going to connect with each one of you in this room. There's going to be a part of my story that you're going to nod your head and you're going to say, yeah, yeah, I've lived through a season just like that. So, my life-changing season begins with two life-changing experiences. And those two life-changing experiences was first, uh, the loss, the unexpected loss of my friend Tom. Tom and I shared a best friend named Steve. And one morning Steve calls me and says, well, Tom has died this morning and I'd like for you to come down to Orlando and to uh, to come to his funeral. And I said, sure, I'd do that. Uh, Tom, I'd kind of drawn a uh, become a little distant from Tom in the last couple of years. But my friend Steve was the, the thing that kind of connected Tom and I. I go to Orlando, Steve picks me up at the airport, we get to the funeral home, and uh, we walk into the room, there's the casket, and uh, uh, as I sat down, I realized there was only four or five people there in that room to celebrate Tom's life. Steve leaned over and he says, Tommy, if you don't mind, please say something about Tom during the service. And I said, sure. And then I started to think, well, what am I going to say about Tom? You see, in those last years of Tom's life, his alcoholism had separated him from everyone in his life that cared about him. It created a, a real void. And, and probably worst of all, my friend Steve that had tried to help him so much, he had been really ugly to my friend Steve. I frankly didn't know what I was going to say about Tom. Well, that afternoon, flying back on the airplane, I was kind of thinking back over the day, and I was thinking about Tom not knowing what to say, and I was thinking about what if someone called on me or called on you at my funeral to say something about me? What would they say? That was a real thing. I began to think about it. I really, really was inspired. God just put it on my heart to, to really begin to think about how did I want to live my life different? The second life-changing experience was the Great Recession. We all have lived through the Great Recession, and some of us were probably impacted more than others. For me, for me and Carol, we lost everything during the Great Recession. Everything that we were doing was real estate-related. And so as the Great Recession happens in our, in our life, we, we lose everything. And so we, 
we think about the idea of being very successful at one point, but then all those successes turn into failures, and they turn into financial failures, things that, that were so complicated, so complicated failures that just, I, I just didn't know how things were going to work out. So, why were these life-changing experiences for me? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, they were life-changing experiences because they changed the way that I measured everything in my life. These intersections, the intersection with Tom and the Great Recession, began to change everything about my life. The way I changed relationships, the way I measured relationships, the way I wanted to measure success, and the way I wanted to see my life live out. The other thing that happened here is because of everything that was going on, the change in my life, I knew that I needed to live differently. And I knew that for the rest of my journey that I needed a, a, a better way to live. So I was inspired to create some lessons. I'm going to share those lessons with you. And the thing about these lessons is these are now lessons that I live by every single day. So my first life-changing experience was Tom's unexpected death. And what this did, it began my search for what God's purpose would be in my life. Now, up until this point, I'm a believer. I'm a believer, okay? Jesus Christ was my Savior, but I hadn't necessarily been living out what God's purpose was for my life. See, when we're all born, we're all born, and we begin with about 30,000 days. Some of us will have a little more. Some of us may have a little less. But we all begin with 30,000 days. How many people, anybody 42 years old in the room? 42 years old. You're halfway. You've lived through 15,000 days. I've lived through 25,000 days. Okay, so we begin with a beginning day, that day that we're born, and then, then there's an unknown last day. That last day that comes that we don't know when it is, but it's an unknown last day. It may be today. It may be another 15 years from today. But we all have an unknown last day. So, for Tom, Tom makes it through 20,000 days, okay? And he had an unknown last day, and I can promise you, uh, Tom, on his last day, he didn't know it was his last day, and he would have liked to have stuck around and probably done things different. He didn't get that chance. Here's the thing about Tom. Tom, on the day that he died, that we were, I was in that uh, funeral home, there in the room with five people, trying to figure out what to say, he left and he had millions of dollars in the bank. Millions. He wasn't married. He had a, a child by uh, somebody they were never married. The child didn't even have his name. And he had millions of dollars in the bank. But here's the thing about it. Tom had failed in life. He failed in life. So my dad always used to say, he said, son, he says, the dollars on the scoreboard are what? They're not the score of your life. Tom's life, and the lesson that he really teaches me, is a lesson about the scoreboard. So we all measure what matters for us, and, you know, all of us, arguably in this room, if we're really honest, we want to be successful. We want to be successful in many ways. We want to be successful uh, financially. We want to be successful at home as a husband, as a wife, uh, in business. We want to be successful. So the, the question that Tom leaves behind for me to answer is the question of exactly with the time that I have left, how do I really want to measure success? Tom left millions of dollars in the bank, but he had failed in life. So, 
It's a good question. Tom lost his way. He lost his family and friends along the way. And the reason that I didn't know what to say about Tom there in those moments in that at his funeral was the fact that Tom had lived his life with no purpose. No purpose. So Rick Warren writes a really extraordinary book. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. Anybody read The Purpose Driven Life? It, it's a really great book. That book he writes in 2002. And in the 21st century, which we're living in the 21st century, that's the number one uh, selling nonfiction book of the 21st century so far. About 38 million copies have been sold. Somebody gives me the book in 2002. I don't read it. I'm really busy. <laughs> Got a lot going on. I don't read it till 2012, 10 years later. I'm about four years into the Great Recession and this, this season in my life, this life-changing season. I can remember on a Saturday morning picking up that book and opening it up, and if you remember, the very first sentence in the book, the first paragraph, first sentence that Rick Warren says, he says, it's not about me. It's not about me. So I, I remember thinking, well, if it's not about me, then why am I here? That was my first thought. Why am I here? Well, I'm here to find God's purpose for my life. And I'm also here to live out God's purpose for my life. So what I had to do, it was a challenge at this point. I had to begin to replace my purpose with God's purpose. My purpose with God's purpose. See, up to this point, I'd lived out my purpose. I was a believer. I loved the Lord, but, but I was living my purpose. I was kind of confused about things. So at this point, I had to replace my purpose with God's purpose. The lessons that I learned from the purpose-driven life are real simple, and I've kind of boiled this down and summarized. Without God, life has no purpose. Without purpose, life has no meaning. And with li without uh, meaning, uh, life has no significance. So it's not about me. It's about living with purpose, having meaning, and the meaning that comes from loving and caring about other people, and then significance. Significance, by its definition, is importance. What is important? Significance. That's how I was going to begin to measure uh, my success. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul tells me that I am here for God's purpose. And that purpose is to serve my family and friends. How do I serve them? Uh, I serve them with love and kindness. That's why God put me here. So I've always been very competitive. I've always been someone that measures things and measures where I am today versus where I was a week ago last year, measuring things. I also uh, have made the mistake, like some of us in the room, probably of comparing myself, measuring and then comparing myself with other people. See, it was God's purpose that began to change the way I measured everything, my relationships, the success, and, and especially for success. I began to realize that I needed to measure success by my significance. Significance, again, is importance, the importance I have to other people. So my significance would really govern the way that I would measure success, and I would do that by making sure that I would love and serve uh, my family and friends. So you remember I said there was two life-changing experiences. First life-changing experience was uh, obviously Tom's unexpected uh, death. 
The second life-changing experience was the Great Recession. And for me, for me and Carol, it was something that went on for about seven years in our life. It didn't just, it didn't just start and it was over about a year and a half or two years later. It went on, it dragged on. I felt like I was in quicksand. And what it did is it begins a, a walk for me. I, I call this the walk through the valley of financial death. Has anybody ever walked through one of those valleys? Yep. Yep. Well, I can tell you it's a, a long, scary walk. And it's a, you, you feel so often so much despair and hopelessness. So in life, for all of us, we have what I've called unplanned circumstances. There are things that just are going to happen. Unplanned circumstances, it's not a matter of if they're going to happen. It's just when they're going to happen. And they're going to happen. It's going to be that call in the middle of the night where a loved one has been in an accident, or it's that lab report when you go to the doctor that gives you back something really unexpected. For me, the Great Recession was an unplanned circumstance. I did nothing to cause it, but yet it has a devastating effect. Think about everything that you've worked for in your lifetime, you lose, and you lose, it it goes away really quick, but the whole process goes on for like six and a half, seven years. So here's a question, and I know that probably for everyone in this room, we really believe this, but I want you to think about a time that God has answered a prayer in your life. So the question is, does God answer prayer? Everybody would say, yes, he does. Think about that time in your life when he did. For me, as I began my walk in the valley, I can remember praying, getting on my knees and saying, Lord, Lord, just, you know, I know this, this, this whole financial thing is going really bad. All the banks are failing. Everything you pick up in the newspaper you read every day just reinforces how bad things are. So I began to pray and I said, Lord, just let this get over really quick, okay? Just, you know, we, we can lose a little. Just, just don't let us lose everything. Please, Lord, please don't. Don't let this. You know, I'm, I'm the mayor for the city. I do a good job here. I care about people. Just spare us. Well, he didn't answer my prayers exactly the way I was asking. Uh, and often, he doesn't do it that way. But what he does do, he does answer my prayer with what I call the gift of personal awareness. The gift of personal awareness. And for me, this was the game changer in my life because what happened with the gift of personal awareness, it gave me this ability to see things around me in a way that I had never seen them before. And what, so there were two things. First of all, I could see myself and see in my, inside myself. And secondly, I could see everyone around me in a way, again, that I had never been able to see before. It was a very noticeable awareness. So my personal awareness, first of all, uh, allowed me to see inside myself. So what did I see? When I, when I looked in the mirror and the mirror looked back into my soul, what did I see? I could see that I had a fear of failure. It wasn't just at that point that it just happened because of the Great Recession. No, I realized that, that I could see that I had this fear of failure, and I'd had this fear of failure all of my life. So I had worked not necessarily to succeed in life. I'd worked not to fail. Think about that. So the devil has a big toolbox, and inside that toolbox, there are tools with our names on them. So what do you think the, uh, the tool in the devil's uh, toolbox that had my name on it? What do you think it was? It, it was fear. That's how the devil would work on me. 
Now, you would never know if you, if you were around me all the time, you would never know that I was fearful, but I was. And so in John 14, 1, first verse, Jesus tells us, don't be afraid. Trust God, trust God's love, trust God's plan. Don't be afraid. And fear not and don't be afraid are mentioned 365 times in 365 different scriptures in the Bible. That's one time a day. Don't be afraid. So that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of reminders there. So for me, I realize that being afraid is really kind of the fear of the unknown. Sometimes we're, we have this fear of the unknown that we think something's going to happen really bad, but it really never happens. But we're afraid that it's going to happen. The devil's got that tool in, our, in his toolbox with our name on it, and he's just working on us with it, and that's what he was doing with me. So Mary and Joseph, the disciples, the shepherds, Isaiah, Moses, David, Paul, all of these people in the Bible that we read so much about, all, all dealt with some kind of fear. Think about the shepherds out in the fields, and, and the angels come, and they say, look, fear not. That's the first thing they sell, tell the shepherds. I'm bringing you some good news. They're still afraid. No angels were talking to me. I can tell you that. It would have been helpful. Uh, now, what is it that I have in common with these people in the Bible? And why is fear not mentioned 365 times? It's because these people, these folks that we read so much about, they were afraid that they were going to fail. They were afraid that they weren't going to measure up to what God was asking them to do. They were afraid that they were going to fail. So why did I work so hard not to fail? It was a life-changing question that had a life-changing answer. And that answer really comes from simple. What am I afraid of? I am afraid at that time, and I still have these fears today. I'm much better today. But I was afraid of what people were going to think. Simple. What were they going to think if I failed? I'm the mayor of the city. Uh, we've, we've been very successful, and now we're failing. What are people going to think? Could they ever get over the fact that I fail? Would they ever see me differently, or were they always going to see me that? And, you know, what kind of impact is this going to have uh, on my friends and family? What were people going to think? So my personal awareness helped me to do some basic things. First of all, to, to learn how to exchange uh, my fear of failure with my faith that God had a plan for me and that he loved me. So the great lesson that I learned through my personal awareness of being aware of all of these things and aware of myself is to be able to exchange my fear with my faith. So you remember I said, first of all, there was two things that personal awareness showed me. First of all, to see inside myself, but also to see everyone around me. And, and, and like I can remember just all of a sudden being aware of people around me like I'd never been aware before. And I could see how what I said and how I acted did one of two things in people's life. First of all, it either encouraged people or it discouraged people. And here's what I want to be. I want to make sure that I am an encourager. And here's the things about encouragement. Encouragement has influence. Influence brings out the best in other people. And influence unifies and brings people together. Why is that important? Why is unifying in a time like we're living in now, why is that so important? See, we need to be drawn to one another. And we need to have the kind of influence that brings people together. My personal awareness 
has helped to make me a better leader. I'm a leader every day. I'm a leader in our community. And I love what John Maxwell says about the definition of leadership. John Maxwell, if you don't know who he is, he's a, 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 probably one of the most famous leadership uh, gurus in all of the world. And he says that leadership can be defined with one word, influence. Here's what I've learned, though, about leadership and influence. If you don't have the component of love within your influence, you're not going to have any long-lasting effect with your leadership. My family and friends don't really care how much I know unless they know really how much I care. My personal awareness has helped to allow me to show others how much I care. So God continued to answer prayers. I continued to pray. (laughs) I soon realized that he wasn't going to answer my prayer in the way that I thought because uh, this, this, this great recession journey goes on and on and on in dealing with banks. It was so, so complicated. But he answered my prayer with, with two really important scriptures, scriptures that uh, for me today are an important part of the lessons I'm going to share with you in just a minute. In Psalm 39.1, David... King David, the guy who kills Goliath, is, has this ongoing conversation with God all throughout Psalms. And he's asking, uh, he's, he's consumed with the brevity of life, how short life is. And he's, he's asking God to tell him, he, he says, look, how, God, how many days am I going to be here? How many days? He had the same 30,000 day average as everybody else, but he wants to know how many days he's going to be here. And here God, God answers back and says, look, David, Life is really short, and you're not going to be here very long. That's his answer. You're not going to be here very long. So, don't worry about things that don't count. That's what God tells David. So, then, in Ephesians 5, 16, Paul tells us to, literally, these are the words in that scripture verse. Make sure you make the most out of every day, and don't be distracted with things that don't matter. So there's where my make it count story comes from. It was like, bam, it was a lightning bolt. There it is. You remember 25,000 days. I don't have, if it's the average, I've got 5,000 days left. And so I don't have a lot of time left. So I better make sure that I make it count. Again, all of us in this room, we want our life to matter. I had the right way to do this. God just answered me very clearly, answered my prayers. So it doesn't matter how I started my journey. What really is going to matter at this point is how I finish my journey. So there is, uh, there is really the hourglass that represents my life. And you can notice there that there's more sands on the bottom of the hourglass than there are on the top, right? Some of you, it's exactly the other way around. So how do I take my life-changing experiences along with these Bible verses that are answers from to all my prayers, how do I take that and make it count? Well, I knew that I needed to have a roadmap. Why do I need a roadmap? I don't want to get distracted, and I certainly don't want to get lost like my friend Tom. So I needed a roadmap that would be something that I could live by every day. So I created what I call three really simple make it count lessons. And these make it count lessons are are lessons I live by every day. They're they're simple and they had to be simple for me. So lesson number one is uh, to live every day with purpose. Live every day with purpose. Number two, lesson number two, live every day to make a difference. And lesson number three is to live every day as an adventure. Okay, 
Live every day as an adventure. So lesson number one, to live every day with purpose. What kind of purpose? The purpose to show God's love to my family and friends. I show them love by serving them and making sure that my purpose every single day is why I'm here. That's why God put me here on this earth. Viktor Frankl, I meet up with him uh, during my uh, my, my season, my life-changing season. And Viktor Frankl is a Holocaust survivor. Uh, he writes a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in 1943, he and his family, because they're Jewish, his wife, his children, his mom, his dad, his brothers are all sent to a concentration camp. Guess what happens? All of his family are murdered by the Nazis. Viktor Frankl is the last part of his family that's left. The last one. And every single day he would believe that this was his last day because people, he would, they would take people out of the, the, the barracks that they were in and they never came back. It was just like this, like this. So he got to a point where he, was, he almost lost hope and he said, you know, if I'm going to survive this experience, if I'm going to be successful at surviving, I've got to find meaning to my life. And so... He finds meaning by helping other people and encouraging the other people that were there in his barracks together that were going through the same thing. He writes this book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, get it and read it. And he says, man's greatest desire is to find meaning. And to find meaning in our life, meaning comes from helping other people. So the good lesson that comes from Victor Frankl for me is that Meaning gives me purpose, and it's real simple to always remember that part of my purpose is to make sure I help other people. Tom had failed in life because he had no purpose. And so I remind myself every day it's not about me and to make sure that it's about living every day with purpose to do what? To show God's love. Lesson number two, live to make a difference. Now, there's another part to live to make a difference. It's also to, to leave everyone better than the way I found them. I want to leave you better than the way I found you this morning. When I make life better for other people, I help to create quality of life. I'm all about building quality of life. That's where my quality of life theme uh, in our city comes from. Quality of life for who? For friends and family. In 2014, I meet up with a gentleman named Chris Rosati. Chris Rosati, at the time that I meet up with him, uh, has just been diagnosed with ALS. ALS, as you know, is terminal. And so uh, he had a really unique perspective about life, and he wanted to make life better for other people. So he created, at the point that he gets diagnosed with ALS, he's terminal, he goes and creates a nonprofit called BIG. Big, big ideas for greater good. And the whole mission for Big was to re reward random acts of kindness. So people would write him and they would say, Chris, I've got this idea to do something really neat for my community. And he'd send them a check. He'd send them a check. Yes, go do random acts of kindness. I'll pay for it. And he did. And what Chris Rosati showed me is that kindness makes life better. Somebody had a kindness on the back of their shirt this morning. Raise your hand back there. That's right. Kindness. Kindness makes life better for other people. So for Chris Rosati, he gives me a really good lesson. First of all, we can be kind and we can do things for other people regardless of our circumstances. Look what he did from his wheelchair. 
The second thing is that kindness can change our world. And, and the world that Chris was talking about was not the big global world. It's our own world. It's our family. It's our job. It's our community. That's our world. Our world gets really small. So we can, if we're kind, we can change our own world. There's my wife, Carol. And uh, I love my wife. And I want to make sure that I make a difference, that I make her life better every day. I want, I want her life to be better. And in doing so, so that her life is better because of who? Because of me. I don't expect her to, in, on any given day, to say, oh, Tommy, you've made my life better. Thank you so much. No. Making her life better is about me knowing that I've made her life better. She may never tell me that. I think she thinks that, but she may never tell me that. But I want to make Carol's life better. And I want to live every day to make a difference, to make life better for my family and my friends. And finally, lesson number three, to live every day as an adventure and do what no one else wants to do. I bet you thought when I said live every day as an adventure that we were going to the uh, Amazon jungle or something. No. No, we weren't going to do that. Live every day as an adventure means that to do things that no one else wants to do. It's the little things. It's getting out of my car, walking over to City Hall, and maybe picking up trash. Nobody saw me do it, but I picked up the trash. I did something that nobody else wants to do. That's a very conscious thing on my part. See, I think there's an adventure that lives inside of every one of us in this room today. But here's the thing about being an adventure is... It takes courage to be an adventurer. It takes courage to do the things that nobody else wants to do. You have to find the courage to do that. Babe Ruth, home run legend. Everybody likes baseball, I'm sure, in this room. How many home runs do you think Babe Ruth hit in his lifetime? How many home runs do you think he hit in his lifetime? It was one less than Hank Aaron, so take a guess. 714 home runs. He held that record for about 50 years. Okay. Here's the big one. How many times do you think he struck out? 1,334 times. That's a lot of strikeouts. Here's what Babe Ruth says about striking out. He says, don't let the fear of striking out keep you from stepping up to bat. Think about that one. Let that one sink in a little bit. You know, my most favorite astronaut is a guy named Jim Lovell. And Jim Lovell goes, he's part of the Apollo moon mission that was uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the moon mission that where they, we went to the moon. He was on the third moon mission. He was the commander of Apollo 13. Okay, you kind of remember, some of you might remember Apollo 13. Well, here's the thing. He writes, he writes a book about the lost moon. And the lost moon is his story of how he and two other astronauts go to the moon. And on the way to the moon, halfway to the moon, the oxygen tanks, the things that makes the oxygen blows up, blows off the spaceship, and the electrical system begins to fail. And then there were a series of failures after that. It was a disaster. They were halfway to the moon. They're going 25,000 miles an hour. They're going so fast that NASA back in Houston, they say, you know, 
we can't turn them around, the best thing we're going to do is let them go onto the moon, circle the moon, and bring them back on a trajectory back from the moon because they were going so fast. It would take them a day to get them slowed down and turned around. It was an extraordinary, an extraordinary feat by the scientists and the people on the ground. So somewhere in the middle of the night on a Wednesday night, Jim Lovell gets on the radio and he calls Houston and he says, Houston, we have a problem. That's where that saying comes from. You've heard that. It comes from Jim Lovell. They're about 150,000 miles out in space. Houston, we have a problem. So the Apollo 13, he writes in his book, the Apollo 13 uh, mission, uh, he calls it NASA's best successful failure. Why is that? Well, successful because obviously they all make it back to earth and they don't die. Failure, failure because they didn't walk on the moon. They were scheduled to pick up moon rocks and bring moon rocks back. That was the whole thing because the other two astronaut uh, mission that had gone, they had not brought anything back from the moon. So uh, obviously uh, this was uh, uh, something that was really important to NASA. What a great story. So here's the lesson. It's about unplanned circumstances and the unplanned circumstances, the, the things in our life, remember that we don't cause that happen to us and how we take unplanned circumstances and we turn them into successful failures. That's what Jim Lovell did and his team to get back to earth. Okay, here's a guy named Mel Fisher. I meet up with Mel Fisher and uh, Mel Fisher is uh, a real-life treasure hunter. You probably, anybody ever heard of Mel Fisher in the room? Okay. I'm going to tell you a story about a real-life treasure hunter. A real-life treasure hunter that um, spends 20 years of his life looking for the Atosha treasure ship. In 1622, three Spanish galleons leave Cartagena, headed back to Spain. They're loaded down. Uh, they've looted. The, the Spanish have looted uh, all the... Uh, the, the gold and the emeralds there uh, in, in uh, Columbia, South America from the Indians. On the way back, right about the southern part of Florida, big hurricane comes up. The three Spanish galleons all sink. They all go down. And so Mel Fisher, treasure hunter, uh, gets a copy of the manifest. He figures out what's, which boat had all the gold. And one of them had all the gold, and uh, it was called the Atosha figures it out, and then he spends 20 years of his life looking for the Atosha treasure ship. Now, to be a treasure hunter, you have to go out and you have to be to find investors that want to invest in you finding the treasure. And of course, it was easy. He goes to him, he says, look, I know this treasure ship is out here. I want you to be an investor. And well, how much do you want? Well, you know, you, we, we need $100,000. We need this. We need that. So people in the beginning were really excited. They signed up and they started giving him money. Think about 20 years that he's looking for this treasure ship. Now, at some point, people begin to say, wait a minute, you've already asked me that. You asked me that last year. You asked me that five years ago. So he runs out of investors. He goes almost bankrupt during that time because they're out in the water, under the water, looking for the Atosha treasure ship. He loses two family members. They die. They die of a, of a diving accident. He loses his credibility. He got to the point where nobody would hardly speak to him. And I know that there was a day probably right toward the end 
where he thought to himself, he began to have that fear of failure. And he began to think, you know, what if I don't find this treasure ship? I know it's out there, but what if I don't find it? What's going to happen? Well, guess what? In a spring day, on a spring day, maybe like this, uh, it's a little chilly outside, but on a spring day in 1984, in 20 feet of water, they find the Atosha treasure ship in a place that they'd already looked two other times. They just looked down and there it was. They found a big cannon. That's the first thing they found. It is recorded in history as the second largest treasure find in all of history. In all of history. It, it was at the time that it, in 19, it was a half a billion dollars in 1984. So think about what that would be today. Think about that. So, Every morning he would, as they came down to get on the treasure ship to, or the, the ship, the, the, the treasure finding ship, to get to go out to look for the treasure. And every morning he'd get everybody together he's, and he'd say, today's the day. Today's the day. We're going to find this treasure ship today. So he not only had problems with his investors, he had problems with the people that were hired to help him find it. And he had to encourage them every single day. And I'm sure there was a point that, that he lost his credibility with those people too. But here's a great lesson from Mel Fisher. Never let the fear of failure stop us from the things that are important in our life. Don't let the fear of failure keep you from attaining your dreams. You know, sometimes fear, sometimes fear separates us from the most meaningful adventures in our life. So live today as an adventure and be willing to do the things that no one else wants to do. So why is it so important for me to make it count? Well, the sands in the hourglass kind of give me a good reminder today because there are a lot more on the bottom than there are on top. So with the time that I have left, whatever that is, maybe it's today, maybe it's, maybe it's 5,000 days, I don't know. With the time that I have left, I want to make sure that my life matters. I want to make it count. And in doing so, I want to leave footprints. I want to leave footprints for my family and friends. I want my family and friends to know I was here. To know I was here. I don't want somebody standing next to my casket wondering what to say about me. I want to leave a legacy of love so that if you get called on, Chino, at my funeral, you'll know exactly what to say. So greater church, greater church, you are a blessing to our community. Chino, you and Lydia have been a, a blessing to me personally, and I'm so glad that uh, I've had the opportunity to, to know you, to, to watch your journey. Here, here's the thing about all of you this morning. You remember this. If you don't remember anything else that we've talked about today, greater church, you show God's love every day. You've made life better for everyone in our community. And you have served in places and people that nobody else wants to serve. Here's the big thing. You have such an amazing story. You're living proof that God answers prayers. If you look to your left and your right this morning, you would know that you would not be here had God not answered your prayer. You would not be sitting right where you're sitting today had God not answered your prayers. So I'm so proud of this church for you. I'm so proud to be here with you this morning and share this story. 
So thank you for loving our community. May God continue to, to bless this church and to bless you and each one of you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you today. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. The mission of Greater Church is to reach and empower all people. And we hope that this message met you wherever you find yourself on the journey. If God is using this ministry to impact your life, please head to our website at www.greater.church where you can read a message from our pastors, partner with us by giving online, and learn more about what is happening in the life of our church. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us 